church, our Lord said, Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You're listening to Behold the Man. With your host, Joe McLean. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. Shine into the darkness The light of our life shines on For everyone to see That they may know our God And praise His name Rejoice in the Lord always I will say it again Rejoice in the Lord Hola, buenos dias, que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's great to be back with you again this week. Well, this week, we're going to be talking about Yom Kippur and uh, how it's found in the New Testament. We're going to be talking about all that parallelism, all that typology of, of bringing the old into the new and how our Lord perfects the Old Testament feasts. It's a subject that I just love to talk about. Unfortunately, a half-hour show makes it very difficult to do it well. So, uh, without further ado, let's get started by saying our opening prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. All glory and power and honor be to you, Almighty God, as we come before you, again, to praise you, to learn from you. And so may you send forth your Holy Spirit to guide us on this journey, to teach us what gives you glory, that we might learn we ask that you will allow the Jews a great feast, a great high holy day of atonement. That we pray that a spirit of grace will be, be upon all men, that we should all want and desire, Lord, to atone for our sins and for the sins of all those around us and our families and our communities. We pray for peace amongst all mankind. And so we ask for these special graces upon your Jewish people this, this high holy day. We ask Our Lady to also intercede for us and for all. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. 
Well, that, oh, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I almost forgot that part. That's not good. Well, the intro song was Rejoice from Cooper Ray off of his album, Wake the Dawn. For a link to Cooper Ray's website, stop by my website at www.catholichack.com. Just look for the show notes on Yom Kippur in the New Testament. Well, it's the Day of Atonement. You know, I remember uh, when I was a Protestant myself or when I first had my real conversion and I was listening to a lot of Protestant resources, I heard this said all the time. You know, Christ came to give us something new. You know, he's given us a simple gospel. That Old Testament, that Old Covenant, that was all very ritualistic. It's very legalistic. There's just too much liturgy there. And what's in the New Testament, that's simple. It's easy. Have you ever heard that? I mean, I've heard it so much, it, it just amazes me. I mean, really? Where in the gospel does Jesus do away with the Old Covenant? I mean, where does he abolish the feasts and the liturgies and the statutes of his covenant with the people? I would suggest he didn't. In fact, we see in St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 17, quote, Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them, unquote. So, if he didn't abolish the law and the prophets, then where, where is it? You know, where are these feasts of the Old Covenant? How come we don't celebrate them in the New? Or do we? That's the question. You know, we sometimes try to make things too simple. And we've seen that in modern history, in the last 500 years through Protestantism. I didn't say that correctly, but Protestantism. Uh, we've seen how we've tried to reduce the gospel to some simplified message. But it lacks its fullness. It lacks its, its flavor, if you will. And that's what I kind of want to show today in the, in the brief time that we have together, how God took the old and perfected it in the new. And to give you an analogy or an, a metaphor as imperfect as those are, how about the caterpillar? When the caterpillar becomes a butterfly, does it cease to be the same exact uh, creature? Is it somehow a different creature? No, it's the same creature, but it just looks different. It's under a new form same creature under a new form. And so the Old Testament kahal, or the church, has now been transformed into the New Testament ecclesia, the assembly of the Lamb, the assembly of the firstborn. That is the heart of what I want to talk about. The Jewish high holy days, you know, the Jewish, uh, the Yom Kippur, which is celebrated, it's the 10th day after Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. And they fast for 25 hours. They abstain from marital relations. They do not wear leather shoes. And they mark this occasion with special prayers and liturgies, singing litanies and the sort. It's a great opportunity for Jews all over the world to come and to offer atonement for their sins and for the sins of their communities, their families. And so they, they put aside all of their worldly desires and they focus on their spiritual life, their relationship with God. And they pray and they fast and they try to make atonement. Now, this was not the same as the uh, Day of Atonement that we find in sacred scripture or in the practice uh, during the Second Temple period, which was the time when our Lord walked the earth. 
Because back then, the Day of Atonement was marked by sacrifice. Sacrifice in the temple, or as we'll read from scripture, in the tabernacle by the high priest. The offering of bulls and goats. Now, specifically, we want to look at Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 through 34. It says, quote, And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves, and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you, to cleanse you from all your sins. You shall be clean before the Lord. And it is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be an everlasting statute for you, that atonement be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. This whole chapter, chapter 16 of the book of Leviticus, it draws out this Day of Atonement, what that meant. And we're going to talk about that briefly and get into uh, some of the rabbinical traditions, some of the, the sources of rabbinical writings that talked about what it was like during the Second Temple period. But unfortunately, I wish I could have done more research on this topic. I love talking about uh, this kind of parallelism or typology. I love to actually do the research and see how the Jewish people, the people of Israel, actually practiced their liturgies during the time of our Lord. But uh, I just couldn't get into too much depth, so I'll just touch on it just slightly and offer some links that you might go and read for yourself. But if we look back at verse 1 of Leviticus chapter 16, and I'll go through briefly, what did this mean? What happened? How was this feast celebrated for the people of Israel? Well, God tells Moses to tell Aaron. Aaron was the high priest, and Aaron was the brother of Moses. And so God gives these commands to Moses, and Moses passes them on. He says, don't come into the inner sanctuary at all times, no, um, because you might die. All right, Aaron, so you have to, we have to have, mark out some specific occasions where you're going to be going into the inner sanctuary because whether it was the tent of meeting in the wilderness or the actual temple that Solomon built or the second temple later when after the exile from the Babylons, the, the Jews came back and rebuilt the temple and perpetually seemed to be rebuilding that temple until it was destroyed in 70 AD. They, they didn't finish it until 64, so only four years before it was destroyed. Oh, that was, that's kind of tough, actually. But anyway, I'm dig digressing there. So Aaron could not enter into the Holy of Holies. Inside the sanctuary was a special sanctuary that was called the Holy of Holies. It was a cube, and it was laden with pure gold, and it had these cherubim and their wings spread out, overlooking what was the Ark of the Covenant, which was the mercy seat of God, and it was separated by a veil or a big curtain, and only the high priest could go in there one time a year, and it was the, the Day of Atonement, the Holy of Holies, where he would offer up sacrifice through incense and through sprinkling of blood there for himself and for the sins of the people. And so it seemed that Aaron was going in and out at different times, and 
And God was telling him, no, you can't do that lest you die because you have to be, you know, cleansed yourself before you can enter into the very presence of God. And for an example, look at 2 Samuel 6, the Ark of the Covenant. When they just touched it, someone died. Okay, uh, I don't want to get into another digression there, but that's what was going on. And so Aaron couldn't enter just as he wished, only certain prescribed times. Now, that Ark of the Covenant was the where the Shekinah, the glory cloud, the presence of God was present to the people in the form of that cloud. All right. Now he said, bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Wear the holy garments. These were linen garments. These were seamless. Okay, the, the linen garment that the high priest wore was seamless. It was woven from top to bottom, and it didn't have any seams in it. And he also had to wear a linen coat, linen breeches, and a, a, he was girded with a linen girdle. And he also had a linen turban on his head. He was also uh, told to bathe first in water from a holy place, then to don the linen garments. And then he was to take the two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Now Aaron shall offer the bull for himself and for his house. He shall make atonement. Now this is fascinating. Why a bull? Now Aaron, the high priest, and all of the high priests after him, they all had to offer a bull for their own sins and a goat for the sins of the people. Wow. Doesn't that seem a little lopsided? I mean, a bull for the sins of a man and a goat for the sins of all the people? Why? The bull is reminiscent of the golden calf worshipped by the people at the foot of Mount Sinai. Because Aaron, the same man who receives this command, he is the one who fashioned that golden calf. He is the one who helped the people of Israel rebel against God. Because he was too weak on his own part to stand firm. He tried to find that middle ground between total rebellion and maybe getting, you know, killed by the people himself and try to kind of keep a little bit of control. So he says, well, let me fashion this for you. Now, this golden calf represents the one true God. Just worship this. But actually, it was a turning back. Their hearts were turning back to the idols of Egypt. This golden calf was an Egyptian god, if you will. And so God, from that point on, in in a certain sense, was saying to the high priest, to Aaron in particular, and to all of his successors, look here, Mr. High Priest, Mr. Aaron, you decide. You worship the golden calf or you worship me. You want to worship me? Then bring that golden calf before me and kill it as a sacrifice to me so that you will know that I am the true God and that golden calf is nothing more than an idol. So, every generation would have to offer a bull for the sins of the high priest and for his household. He would have to make atonement for himself, making up for that golden calf incident, so to speak. It really is so that the man would understand who's God and who's not. Not for God. God didn't need to understand anything. It was for our sake, not his. All right. Then he was to take two goats and he was to cast lots. One lot would go uh, as an offering for the Lord, and the other, the other goat would be offered up as the scapegoat, and we'll get into that here in a minute. Then he had to actually enter into the Holy of Holies. He would go beyond the veil, that curtain that separated these two sanctuaries. He would go into the Holy of Holies, there before the very mercy seat of God, and he would offer up a, a censer full of coals that came from the altar. And he had two handfuls of this incense, and he would place this incense into the censer, 
this golden censer, and it would create this billowing smoke, and it would fill the, the, the Holy of Holies. It would fill the mercy seat. It would cover it, okay? It brings to life that Shekinah glory cloud there. But this censer, this golden censer, as Catholics, we see the censer all the time at high, uh, high masses. You know, the priest will bring in the censer and he will incense the altar. He'll incense the, the, the candle, the Easter candle, the Easter light, or he'll incense the book. He'll incense the, you know, all kinds of, you know, parts of the mass and the, the furniture and the people and all these things going on. This is bringing to fulfillment what Aaron would do in the liturgies of the Old Testament. Golden censers, golden you know uh, vestments, golden utensils, all of these things that we find in the Jewish liturgies are brought into perfection into the New Testament, into the sacraments. And so I thought that was very, very profound that he brought this censer and, and offered up this incense as an offering to God. Now then he would also have to come back out of the Holy of Holies. He'd have to get some of that blood from the bull that he offered for his own sins and the sins of his household. And he would bring in that into the Holy of Holies. And he would dip his finger in it. And he would offer up this like little flicking of, uh, of blood onto the mercy seat as a way of purifying it. And then he had to go back out and he'd come back in with the blood of the goat. And he would do the same thing. And he'd flick it seven times. Okay, he also had to do the same sort of flicking, not only on the altar, uh, but not rather the Holy of Holies on the ark, but also onto the altar and to the tent and the curtain itself. Okay, because he was purifying it. He was making it all clean because mostly they were trying to make up for those sins that they weren't really aware of. You know, the sins that they committed that they didn't really have knowledge of. They were trying to make up for some of that, too. And so there was a uh, that sort of sensor aspect going on here. Now, so after he did this with the blood of the bulls, and the bull and the goat, purifying all of these utensils, all of these uh, implements of the tabernacle, and also the temple in the second temple period, we see that that scapegoat is brought in. Now, the scapegoat, what he does, is he takes the, the high priest, puts his hands on the second goat, because you remember there were two goats. They, were, they cast lots, and the lot fell to one goat, which was offered up as a sacrifice to the Lord. The other goat was kept alive, and the high priest now lays his hands upon this goat, and he puts, he whispers, he makes a confession of the sins, the transgressions, the iniquities of all the people, and he puts it on them, on this, I'm sorry, on this goat. And this goat is then given to the man in readiness who takes it out into the wilderness, outside of the city. All right, and then after that, the high priest then purifies himself and takes off the special uh, vestments, and he gets into his own vestments. And there's some other things that go on, but I need to kind of move this along a little bit here, so we can get to the heart, the good stuff, right? Well, what I liked when I started to read in the Mishnah and on the JewishEncyclopedia.com website, there are some articles there, and I'll post links to them on the show uh, at CatholicHack.com. There are some great uh, like nuggets that come out in the rabbinical tradition, and the Mishnah is a set of writings that uh, capture the rabbinical tradition. They were trying to capture what happened in those liturgies before they were lost completely to time, because as I said, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, so they were no longer able to offer the Day of Atonement sacrifices, or any sacrifices whatsoever. No temple, no priesthood, no sacrifice, no way of atoning. And so they had to come up with the, the tradition that they have now, which is based on uh, offering up the sacrifice of fasting and prayers and then their liturgies at synagogue. And so that's what happens now. But 
that had to change because they had no sacrificial system anymore. And so they were losing that tradition amongst their people. And so they wrote the Mishnah and others to try to preserve that. And again, I wish I could have done more research, but I just didn't have the time. So I'm going to leave some links and you can do some yourself. But here's a couple of things that I liked. And uh, here's one, for instance, out of the uh, Jewish Encyclopedia article that I'll link to. It says, quote, it states also that as often as the high priest uttered the divine name, the Tetragrammaton, the assembled multitudes outside while prostrating themselves responded, blessed be the name of the glory of his kingdom forever and ever, unquote. So the high priest got to name, he got to proclaim the name of God that one time, that, and they call it the Tetragrammaton. And basically, we think it's Yahweh, but they're, but really, we all we have is the consonants, no vowels. So, in some respects, it's kind of a big guessing game. But this is the one time of year where the high priest got to proclaim the name of God. Because before that, it was sacrilegious to ever proclaim the name of God. You know, punishable by death. And so here he is proclaiming the name and the people prostrate themselves and they, they bow down before God and they say, blessed be the name of the glory of his kingdom forever and ever. You know, that name is so holy that it brings this overwhelming sense of reverence in the presence of God. Also, it seemed that there was so much anxiety over preparing, the high priest preparing for his role in proclaiming this liturgy in the Day of Atonement, that they would separate him from the people, you know, ahead of time, and he would have to really fuss over his own uh, prepare, preparation, his own uh, making sure that nothing would profane him, because he had to see this through. And if he didn't do it right, well, it could mean he could die in the Holy of Holies. And so it was a very serious matter, so much to the point that if he survived it, they would well, they would usher him home to his house, this huge crowd of people, you know, all being, you know, very uh, jubilant, the fact that he survived it, and there would be a big feast, and he would have to foot the bill. And everybody would, you know, basically be partying as a result to uh, the successful completion of the uh, Day of Atonement liturgy. Again, I thought that was very fascinating. Now, the prayer over the scapegoat, again, is recorded in the Mishnah. Uh, and again, I'll, I'll post a link to it. But it says, quote, O Lord, your people, the house of Israel has committed iniquity, transgressed, and sinned before you. Forgive, O Lord, I pray the iniquities, transgressions, and sins which your people, the house of Israel, have committed, transgressed, and sinned before you. Then the goat was given to a Gentile. That was That's awesome. In the second temple period, it became the practice for the high priest to give it to a Gentile. And the Gentile would take this scapegoat, which the high priest just laid hands on, and he would escort it out of the city, outside the city walls, into the wilderness. And then he would take a, a crimson ribbon, or a, a thread, he would tear it in two, and he would tie half of it onto the horns of the goat, and half of it onto a rock. Okay, And then he would toss it backwards into a ravine, and it would die. This is part of what I want to show you in the parallelism that comes to life in our Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Again, I'm, I'm having to rush a bit because time is ticking away and there's just not enough time to dive deep into the subject, but let's just scratch the surface. In Christ, the fulfillment of this feast is found. Jesus, the Messiah, is recognized as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in John chapter 1, verses 29-34. through 34. 
Jesus the Messiah is recognized as the high priest who offers the sacrifice for the sins of the people wearing the linen vestment. We find that in John chapter 19 verse 23 there at the the cross when they when they take off his his seamless garment. The fact that we are told that it's a seamless garment is telling us that he is a high priest. And trust me, that is not nearly the only reference to him being a high priest. I just reference that one, but I've done other shows on the priesthood and the Eucharist where I actually show more of the biblical references showing our Lord to be the high priest. But also, the fact that this vestment of his is torn up, okay, it's also signifying that it becomes like the curtain in the temple separating the two sanctuaries, being torn from top to bottom, as the Gospels tell us. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, we read, quote, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a robe, with a long robe, and with a golden girdle round about his breast, around his breast, unquote. Seven golden lampstands, where are you, St. John? You're in the heavenly temple. You're in the sanctuary of the one true God. And who is that you see there, one like a son of man? That is messianic uh, from the book of Daniel, okay? Also, that golden, that long robe with a golden girdle around his breast, that is the same vestments of the high priest that we just read about in the book of Leviticus. So Jesus is proclaimed here as the high priest in the Holy of Holies, up in heaven before the very face of God the Father. That is Jesus as the high priest. For at the name of God, all prostrate and praise God, as we read there from the Mishnah, so we see also in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11, through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Unquote. The blood of bulls and goats cannot remit sins. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 16, we read this so eloquently stated. For, quote, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices, which are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to have been offered? If the worshippers had once been cleansed, they would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year, for it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings thou hast not desired, but a body hast thou pre prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Lo, I have come to do thy will, O God, as it is written of me in the roll of the book, when he said above, Thou hast neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings, and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Lo, I have come to do thy will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. Unquote. Now, one thing I want to point out there very quickly is this idea of the, the scroll, the book of life. 
That is a very significant part of the Day of Atonement for the Jewish people, for they want their name inscribed in the Book of Life, and they actually wish that upon others, you know, throughout the year, leading up to the new year, because it's a new year, it's a new chance, it's a clean slate, Day of Atonement, let's get our names inscribed in the Book of Life, and here we see the perfection of all that. It's not the blood of bulls and goats that atones for sin, it's our Lord, who becomes the the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. It's His sacrifice, and the fact that He is now offered the once-for-all sacrifice and has entered into the Holy of Holies in heaven, the true uh, uh, sanctuary, the true temple of God. He's gone up to heaven before the very face of God, and His sacrifice is perpetually present at every moment, all the time, reminding God of the sacrifice, the atonement of sin for all mankind. Kind of like when Moses had to beg God to have mercy on the people after they worshiped the golden calf, trying to remind God of the covenant he swore for them. You know, like God needs reminding, but Moses is there pleading and begging. In some sense, that too is perfected in Jesus Christ because he doesn't need to uh, beg or plead because he's always present there before the very face of God, how he entered into the Holy of Holies in heaven and stands there as a lamb standing as if slain. And we see that in Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. We see that John sees him as a lamb standing as though slain. And then the four living creatures, once the Lamb opens the scroll, the book of life, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fall down and they proclaim, quote, Worthy art thou to take the scroll and to open its seals, for thou wast slain, and by the blood didst ransom men from for God from every tribe and every tongue and people and nation, and hast made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth, unquote. The Lamb stands before God as if slain perpetually before the very face of God. It is the sacrifice of God that atones for our sins, sacrifice of Jesus, our Lord and our God, not the blood of bulls and goats. And Jesus was taken, laid hands on by the high priest and uh, and his entourage, and he was handed over to a a Gentile, Pontius Pilate, who took him outside of the city and then sacrificed him as the scapegoat for the sins of all the people. You see what I'm saying? It's powerful, it's deep, and I don't have nearly the time to really get into it in some depth. But do your work, do the study, check out the links at catholichack.com. Realize that Jesus Christ has brought forth the new Kahal, the new Ecclesia, the new church, the assembly of the firstborn, the assembly of the Lamb, and it is in his sacrifice on Calvary, which is the Eucharist made present on the altars of every Catholic church every day that atones for our sin. Today is Yom Kippur. From the Catholic Underground.